This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Gesher. When you hear the term dispensationalism, what comes to your mind? You might think of theological charts illustrating various periods in biblical history, or maybe the best-selling Left Behind series, which came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, or maybe you've never heard the term at all. Whatever your understanding of dispensationalism may be, today's discussion is sure to help define what it is and what it is not, and will give you a better understanding of its implications. My guest today is Dr. Mike Stollard. Mike is a colleague at the Friends of Israel, where he serves as Vice President of International Ministries. He represents FOI throughout the world and works to expand the ministry into more countries. He teaches in churches, schools, and other forums about God's word concerning Israel and the Jewish people. He has earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Alabama Huntsville, his Master of Divinity from Liberty Baptist Seminary, and both his Master of Sacred Theology and his Doctor of Philosophy from Dallas Theological Seminary. And he's here to discuss dispensationalism with me today. Mike, welcome to Gesher. Uh, thanks for having me, Ty. Well, Mike, there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding uh, as it concerns dispensationalism. Uh, I've known pastors who have uh, said, oh, yeah, that's something I used to believe, kind of like it was a, a past childhood uh, theology or something like that. I've had others who embrace it wholeheartedly, and then uh, quite often— I say that term, and I get the deer-in-a-headlight look. Um, so I want to begin by just very simply asking, what is dispensationalism? Uh, well, dispensationalism as a term did not exist until the 1920s. Uh, and it was uh, it's kind of like the term Anabaptist. It was mm-hmm. given by the adversaries of the position, but uh, the moniker kind of stuck. So uh, we've embraced the term for ourselves. Uh, It's unfortunate because the term emphasizes the idea of dispensations. And dispensations is is not what dispensationalism is entirely about. Mm -hmm. uh, Because every covenant theologian since Calvin has held to dispensations. Having dispensations in your theology does not make you a dispensationalist. So we have to be careful about that. I have found Dr. Charles Ryrie's points in his attempt to define dispensationalism uh, to be helpful. I think, first of all, I would say dispensationalism is a view that uh, tries to practice consistent literal interpretation. We'll define that later, but uh, and by consistent, he means we're gonna interpret prophecy the same way we do the rest of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna interpret prophecies about the church, say the end of Romans 8. Uh, just like we do prophecies about Israel at the end of Amos 9. Sure. We're not going to be different in the way we approach those things. And so uh, literal interpretation. Second, uh, a literal interpretation leads to a distinction between Israel and the church. It's not so absolute, that distinction, that we don't share anything. I mean, Israel and the church share a lot. We share God. We share Messiah. We share the coming kingdom. Uh, and we share individual redemption individual salvation. So we share some things, but there's there are two different programs that God has in history through those two different institutions that are quite different. So that's the second point. Third point is, and uh, Ryan, we said this responding to 
some of the theologies claim that dispensationalists did not have uh, a, a way to harmonize everything. In fact, they kind of viewed us, we chop up the Bible into parts and throw it out on the road like roadkill, and we have nothing to bring it together. And Mary said, that's not true. Uh, we have the glory of God. And in fact, the multifaceted nature of what God is doing in history, individual redemption, salvation of Israel as a nation, uh, a plan for the nations per se, plan for the angels, a plan for creation. God's doing many multifaceted things, and that better gives God his due. And so the glory of God brings all of those things together. Sure. Uh, so I think those three points help me to understand the definition of dispensationalism. And for those who, they, they hear that term dispensation, it's not something that we use maybe real often, but um, what is a dispensation itself? Okay. Well, fortunately, the Bible defines that for us. It's a Bible word. Mm -hmm. Some newer translations don't do a good job with it. The English uh, Standard Version, for example, in Ephesians, a couple of times translates the word dispensation uh, as plan. Mm. And that's not what, you know, it misses the whole idea. The key idea is stewardship. Okay. And there is a time period that goes with it. So it's not an age or a time period, but it's the stewardship idea that God is working in different times in history through different people carrying out a certain plan for that age. Mm -hmm. And so it's a stewardship uh, that God has. And of course, uh, men generally uh, fail miserably at trying to carry out God's plan. <laughs> uh, and, yes, we do. and God, I think, proving, helping prove to us our sinful nature through that. Now, when we talk about hermeneutics, hermeneutics, uh, meaning essentially the, the, the way in which we interpret Scripture, what hermeneutic does dispensational theology employ? Yeah, we, we often just label it literal interpretation. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable with that. Every term has its drawbacks, you know, because we, some people will say, well, you believe in figures of speech. You believe in symbols. For example, I don't know of any dispensationalist who believes that Jesus has a literal piece of steel hanging off his tongue when he comes back <laughs> right. in Revelation 19. Right. Uh, so we believe in figures of speech and we believe in uh, symbols. They exist. Uh, but what we mean by literal interpretation is not that. That's one debate, literal versus figurative at the level of an expression. But then there's the larger question of approach to the Bible. And we call it literal hermeneutics. Uh, and uh, that's grammatical, historical interpretation. There's a language context and a history context. And when we come to symbols, when we come to figures of speech, we take those at face value. Now, some use terms like plain or customary or some other term, normal, to uh, describe those. And all terms have their limitations, like I said. But uh, the idea of literal actually goes back into the early church. They called it the census literalis. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the illustration I like to use is okay, Adam and Eve are real people. They took it literally, not as some symbolic thing uh, for the start of the human race, but they were real people that God created. So that's literal interpretation, uh, and we try to be consistent with that across the board. Now, most evangelical or orthodox, small o, uh, Christians would would say that they would believe in, in progressive revelation, that God throughout time has, has revealed more information about himself and his, his plan. Um, 
as it concerns the the literal hermeneutic, though, um, how do we find that 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 our hermeneutic influences our view of progressive revelation, or maybe it's the other way around? I guess what I mean is, um, I, I, as dispensationalists, we don't read the New Testament back into the old. We read the old uh, or the Tanakh or the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. Can you explain why we do it that way? Yeah, we do it that way because of our belief in the progress of revelation. Like you said, everybody seems to believe in the progress of revelation. The Bible didn't fall out of heaven and land under a rock like the Book of Mormon. Right. Okay. So it was given, you know, 40 different authors, 16 centuries over time. Uh, but dispensationalists consistently hold to the significance of the progress of revelation for Bible interpretation. So we don't read Moses as if he held the book of Revelation in his hand. Mm-hmm. We read him, uh, what does he say and how would the original audience have understood that given the text that he gave us? Uh, I know one uh, covenant scholar made the statement that uh, you can't understand a single verse in the Bible until you've read the whole Bible. Mm. Well, what does that do to the Ten Commandments? I mean, the, the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, when Moses came down and gave the Ten Commandments, did God expect them to understand them? literally at face value and then obey them right of course he did uh and and so we approach the bible that way in the old testament we we say the old testament has an autonomy for its own interpretation Mm. you know i sometimes ask students you know what's the most important factor in interpreting the old testament and the the question the answer is the old testament text it's not something else it's the old testament text yes it's not the new testament recontextualization of the new testament reinterpretation or any of that stuff but we see in building blocks that god throughout time is building and he continues that in the new testament but he doesn't go back and cancel things that he said before sure otherwise god's a liar for example uh, at the end of amos 9 which i mentioned earlier that god promises israel uh one day you're going to be in your land never to be uprooted again okay you take it at face value what does it mean Israel being his land one day, never to be uprooted again. I mean, it's rather straightforward. Mike, that's radical. We to, yeah, we go we go to uh, Romans eight. You know, in that beautiful eternal security passage, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, a promise for the church, and we take that and we we love that. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, and we embrace it wholeheartedly. But then somehow, many Christians who don't hold to a little hermeneutic, uh, they'll just go back and assume that the the passage about Israel was something else, mm-hmm. uh, and they change it, or they ignore it, one or the other. Usually, right. they change it, right? Okay, and they just envelop it in some large recontextualization done by the New Testament, and that's uh, that's totally inappropriate. It cancels out earlier scriptures, uh, and that's that's something that I think flirts with destroying the character of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, if you go to Psalm eighty-nine. And God, God makes a, a promise that I will judge the sons of David who sit on the throne of, da- of David in Israel. If they, if they disobey me, I'll judge them. But I will never cancel my promise to David. He makes that very clear. And then he says, I swear by my holiness. I will not be a liar before David. So God's character is at stake in the way that we handle these passages. And I think we need to handle them the way that God gave them when he gave them. And uh, progress revelation is tied then to that, when I say literal means grammatical, historical, progress revelation is the 
H, it's the historical part of grammatical historical interpretation. Sure. And so we embrace it and it's important for interpretation. Yeah. And I think too, with what you're saying is the, the nature of language comes into play there because if we believe that, that God has given us revelation and he wants us to understand it and he's given us language to understanding it, I think this comes to the grammatical aspect, then, then when he gave the, the law at Sinai, as you said, he, he intended for them to not only uh, receive it, but to be able to understand it and to obey it. Yes. Agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, I want to ask you now uh, a little more personally, how did you become a dispensationalist? Uh, I, I know that's not necessarily, that's not the same thing as becoming a, a follower of Jesus, <laughs> but um, tell me a little of your story of how you came to hold to this position. Well, it is wrapped up in me coming to Jesus. I was never in a church before I was 20 years old, mm. just one time, one time before I was 20 years old. Uh, uh, but I went on a quest visiting different kinds of churches when I was 20 years old. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. Uh, and uh, I, visit, I finally landed in a church. It was the West Huntsville Baptist Church. Dr. Sam Wolf was the pastor. And they were going verse by verse to the Bible. And I had been seeking something like that. Mm. I wanted to understand the Bible. I was, I was confused. I was reading the Bible. I couldn't get it. But I wanted somebody to help me. So I, I ended up at this church. Uh, and I stayed there for two months listening. And then I started, a, a, I started attending a, the young people's class and college age class. And, uh, and in August, on August 18th, 1974, in a church service, I trusted Jesus as my savior. Mm. Well, that church happened to be a church that uh, the people were carrying the New Schofield Reference Bible, and they were uh, a dispensational church. The pastor was not afraid of the word Israel, and they had classes in the evenings before church, uh, things like dispens a 13-week class on dispensationalism. They had classes on the minor prophets, and I began to attend all of those, and I grew as a dispensationalist. It was a very evangelistic church and a very good Bible-preaching church, and it's hard to get both of those sometimes in the same congregation. Sure. Uh, but the pastor has done a good job at merging those two things. And so I came to Christ in a dispensational church, and, and I haven't gotten over that. Hmm. Uh, I've certainly tweaked my theology as I've grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, uh, and I've, I've done better, I think, as I go along. There are a few things I've jettisoned, but um, uh, over, on the whole, I'm exactly where I was in those early days hmm. uh, with, with uh, little change. Sure. Well, that's wonderful. I want to I want to ask you about a charge that dispensationalists often uh, receive from from those who are opposed to dispensationalism, and that is that dispensationalism is a relatively new idea that it began uh, in the in the 19th century with uh, John Nelson Darby, um, and therefore it was foreign to the early church fathers. This is a this is the new kid on the street, whereas um, what the reformers uh, recovered was the true faith, uh, and, and in terms of covenant theology, how do you respond to such a charge? Yeah, that's uh, you know that charge has been refuted forty years ago, hmm. uh, but and even now, more and more evidence is coming out that that just simply can't can't be held seriously by scholars. And I, I'm hoping twenty years from now that that. Uh, people will look back and laugh at those who use that argument. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's always what, what does the Bible say is the real issue, sure. not uh, what church history has said, although church history helps us. 
I sometimes will start that kind of discussion uh, with uh, talking, if I'm talking to say a covenant uh, theology guy, I'll say, you know, that's what the Catholics say about you. Hmm. You sure. know, you're Johnny come lately. Your, your system was not really put into systematized form until the 1600s, even after Calvin. And so uh, you're Johnny come lately relative to the Catholics. <laughs> so how do you answer that charge? You know, and the same way they would answer that, we would piggyback on that and answer it too. In fact, I think we have more evidence in the early church to help us. If you go back to Irenaeus in the second century, you know, I date him in the second half of the second century. And he has a clear premillennialism, right? Most of the early church is premillennial. Mm -hmm. uh, he has uh, seven 1,000 year periods, the last one being the millennium. He doesn't line them up the way that we would do in modern times, uh, but he, uh, clearly has everything. Maybe he doesn't have the preacher of rapture, although I was recently at a conference where I heard a presentation in Irenaeus uh, interpreting him as holding to a preacher of rapture. Wow. And uh, I'm going to have to go back and look at that a little more closely. It made sense to me the way he, the, the speaker was handling uh, the passages sure. uh, in Irenaeus. And so that's quite early. And then there, uh, outside of Irenaeus, we have maybe 20 pre-trib rapture citations before Darby. Hmm. So uh, what I see Darby doing is he's basically a rediscovery of a Jewish perspective of the Bible. And by that, I don't mean the rejection of Messiah. I mean by that, uh, their view of an earthly kingdom. Yes. And he's kind of a re rediscovery of that because uh, the reformers had, you know, they had gone back to a more basic grammatical and historical interpretation of the Bible in areas of salvation uh, and uh, the bibliology and all those things, uh, but they didn't do it for eschatology. Yep. Well, Darby comes along, he does it for eschatology. I think the Anabaptists did for ecclesiology. Mm. Darby comes along and does it for eschatology. Uh, and I think that uh, has been a positive uh, development. So there is development of doctrine over time, but uh, like I say, we have everything is in, almost in place for, for us as a system. Uh, roughly, it's rough in Irenaeus back in the second century. So uh, that's uh, that's pretty old. Of course, and then I'll say this, yeah, we're very ancient in our views. It goes all the way back to the Bible <laughs> and the yes. Bible's ancient. So uh, so we reject the idea that uh, we're a Johnny come lately theology only in the modern way that we have formulated it. Is it a new uh, formulation? Sure. I think when, when most people, listeners uh, think of dispensationalism. Uh, as I mentioned in our intro, they, a lot of them would think of the Left Behind series, maybe some of the more sensationalized aspects of it. But um, what is the connection between dispensationalism and the, uh, the idea of premillennialism, meaning that the, the return of Christ will come before the millennial kingdom, and the pre-tribulational rapture, meaning just for those who aren't familiar, that uh, there is this this taking up of the church prior to this period known as the tribulation in which God um, uh, judges the earth uh, and, and chastens Israel. Can you talk about that? Yeah, let me first say a kind word about Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye was a friend of mine, mm. uh, and the Left Behind series was an honest attempt to present biblical data if it were to happen now. Sure. Okay. Uh, never makes a prediction anywhere about the second coming or the rapture or any of that stuff. Never does the sensational date setting. Mm -hmm. 
that he's sometimes accused of never happens in those uh, those novels. Now, some people object just to the fiction idea of presenting biblical data in the, in the form of fiction. That's a different debate, but he never does that. And uh, and thousands of people have come to faith in Christ through those novels. Yes. So uh, I'm thankful for that, regardless of any downfall there might be in writing such a series. Uh, it is true that not all premillennialists are dispensationalists, but it is true that all dispensationalists are premillennial. Mm. Now, there is a debate about whether you can be a post-trib dispensationalist. There are some, uh, Robert Gundry, a kind of uh, claim to be a post-trib dispensationalist. So uh, they could come within the close boundaries of Ryrie's three points and still uh, argue for a post-trib rapture. That debate about the rapture is largely an exegetical one with little theology, for example. It boils down to how you handle First Thessalonians 5, and First Thessalonians 4 and 5 together. And I think dispensationalists have the upper hand there. And then Revelation 3.10, those kind of passages. Mm -hmm. I shy away from the theological arguments that are sometimes used for the pre-trib rapture. And I, I try to stick to the exegetical ones, the more grounded ones exegetically. Uh, so dispensationalism in the 20th century began to be identified historically with pre-trib, pre-mill. So I think right now the average person, even the average scholar would just say pre-trib, pre-mill, well, that's dispensationalism. And post-trib, pre-mill would be historic dispensationalism. So that's kind of the boundaries that are laid out there with different kinds of premillennialism that are out there. But there is a connection. There's no such thing as a dispensationalist who is not premillennial. Right. So just to, and, and to define this, uh, again, this is not a system that we're trying to impose on the text. This is uh, doing a, a literal reading of the scripture, taking into consideration genre uh, and, and, and things like that, uh, we arrive at this point where we say, yes, the text does seem to teach that the coming of the Messiah Jesus, the second coming, will be prior to his establishing the kingdom. It's not something that we are going to do by spreading the gospel or something like that. Um, and that the, the rapture of the church occurs uh, at least seven years before that. And, and listeners, you can go listen to my interview with Tommy Nelson uh, about Daniel chapter nine to, to understand the nuances there and how we get that seven year idea. But that comes because of a, of a literal reading of the text. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think we are inductive in the way we approach the Bible. Okay. We are not deductive. Let me give you an illustration. Sometimes to get away from the covenant dispensational debate, I want to highlight the method of covenant theology. I'll, I'll go to the Baptist versus pedo-Baptist debate. Uh, and I'll, I'll go to John Murray's little book, Christian Baptism, mm. which may be the best little book uh, defending uh, the pedo-Baptist covenant theology infant baptism model. Uh, and in there, in the preface, he is highly instructive. He says, I can understand how someone would be enamored with the Baptist understanding of believers baptism by immersion if you go passage by passage by passage then he says but you can't do that mm. he says you have to approach the bible organically is the word he uses and he means systematically so in other words you have to approach the bible with your systematic theology in mind in the end he's arguing that we know that covenant theology we know that infobaptism is right because covenant theology is right uh. so i think 
covenant theology is very creedal, where dispensationalism is much less creedal. Yes. And so they have an, they automatically have a bent to overlay their theology on the text, whereas we don't have as much of that. I'm, everybody has a creed, uh, but we don't have as much of that. We're not looking over our shoulder wondering if we're going to violate the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right. Uh, we're not historically grounded in that same way. We're historically grounded more in the text uh, of the Bible. That's that's my interpretation. They would, I'm sure, they would disagree strongly with that. But that's that's my read on the whole thing. Sure. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about covenant theology because uh, I think a lot of people uh, imbibe at least parts of that or some aspects of that because it's become so mainstream uh, in the last few decades. So what is covenant theology? Yeah, covenant theology is a theology that is grounded in, in Calvin, John Calvin, Mr. Presbyterian. And I think it's codified in the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's the 1640s. Uh, and uh, John Cusius, one of the theologians of that time, was a major advanced, advanced guy for that, who, by the way, he held to a future for national Israel, which mm. was interesting. Um, uh, covenant theology posits two, at least two, theological covenants. By theological, I mean they are deductive. They're not inductively derived from the text exegetically. Like we go to the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. There's actual text that leads to those covenants. They are right. in biblical theology. These are systematic theology constructs. And the first one is the covenant of works. Uh, oftentimes these days called covenant of creation. That's in Genesis 2. God makes it with Adam. Uh, and Adam obviously, Adam obviously failed. Uh, and so that uh, led to the fall and the curse. And therefore, God started the covenant of grace program hmm. in Genesis 3 throughout the rest of biblical history until the consummation of time when God does away with death and the curse. And that covenant of grace is... Uh, focused on individual redemption through election. So it's an individualistic thing, uh, and uh, that's the focus of it. Now, some also will posit a covenant of redemption. That's the spe specialized covenant uh, between the three persons of the Trinity and eternity past, so to speak. Uh, uh, and But some don't hold to that, some do. They debate that in their own circles. And so they have those two main covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace, Obviously, in biblical history, since the fall, we deal with the covenant of grace. Uh, and that is, that's kind of the lens by which they read the whole Bible. And by the way, that's why they fail in the Old Testament so much. It's why they end up reading the new back into the old, because that individual redemption theme fits the New Testament very well, but not the Old Testament as well. Right. Because the Old Testament focuses on national and community promises an awful lot. Mm -hmm. There are the individual redemption promises there for sure. Uh, but it has a lot of this other stuff that doesn't fit the lens. And so that causes the reevaluation, the, the reinterpretations, the reading back of the new into the old. That's where that comes from. So um, I think it has become popular in recent years, not because of the covenants, not the covenant system. I think it's become prominent because of the Calvinism. I see. Because theology is tied to Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, sure. tulip, all those discussions about predestination and election, that's on the ascendancy in academic circles, uh, in, in conservative Protestantism. Uh, and I, I think that has drawn people to that. Uh, 
the people talking about that, and that leads people to jump into the covenant wagon, sure. so to speak. I don't think it's the covenants themselves that are attracting people. And and I think you and I probably both know of Calvinists who are dispensational. So it's not that it's not that uh, to be a Calvinist is to hold to covenant theology, but the the nature of uh, holding to Reformed theology as a whole does lend itself to holding to a Reformed eschatology. Yeah, but Darby, yeah, Darby himself was a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Brooks, pres- a Presbyterian, and the you know, head of the Niagara Conference was a Presbyterian. Um, so, and even Lewisbury Chaper, although he was a four-point Calvinist, not a five-point Calvinist, uh, was a Presbyterian. Sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, dispensations. And Grace Seminary, one of the uh, major seminaries, the five-point Calvinist school, uh, Dallas Seminary traditionally four-point Calvinist. Mm. So you have you have a strong Calvinistic bent to a lot of the history of dispensationalism in the United States. Sure. Well, even even here at the Friends of Israel, our our most of our original founders were Presbyterian, and uh, I'm sure had that that Calvinist bent there. Uh, Mike, I want to talk to you about supersessionism, or what's often called replacement theology. Uh, it's intimately connected to covenant theology. So, can you just touch on that? What is supersessionism, and what has its impact been on on the Jewish community and on the church? Yeah, this is a uh... This is a sticky wicket, not because I can't define it. I can define it very easily. But it's a sticky wicket in terms of interpersonal relationships that mm. come out of it. Um, replacement theology is the theological position that the church in history has replaced Israel in the plan of God, and that all the promises given to Israel accrue to the church in some way. And so the land promises, for example, since the church doesn't have land per se uh the land promises accrue to the church in a spiritual way or we're going to get the whole world you know there are different ways that that change takes place but it's a change in the promises the promises as the old testament would be understood on its own have just been canceled morphed and moved over to the church Uh, so that's uh, supersessionism the church superseding israel or replacement theology the church replacing israel now there are a couple different forms of that one uh, prominent in the Roman Catholic tradition is that Israel um, forfeits the promises because of their rejection of Christ. They're the Christ killers. And so the Jews uh, no longer get the promises mm. uh, by forfeiture that goes over to the church. Uh, I think in covenant theology, they don't often voice it that way these days. Uh, it's more, it's replacement theology from our perspective by continuation. So Israel is just uh, continues in the church. And so they define church as the collection of the saved of all time, I starting see. with Adam or Abraham. And so the whole, whole kit and caboodle is the church. And so Israel's Old Testament church, and then we have the New Testament church, with which you and I deal with today. So supersessionism is uh, presented in that way. Um, the problem uh, with that is it violates the Bible in our, in our view. Uh, that God has a future for national Israel, not just for Jews getting saved and coming into the church. Actually, has a program. I mean, uh, you can't read the entire book of Zechariah, especially Zechariah 12 to 14, and believe there's no plan for national Israel. Right. You have to do something with that. You can't take it at face value. We take it at face value. Yep. Uh, same way with Luke 1. 
and the promise uh, in the virgin birth uh, passage when the Gabriel's talking to Mary. Um, it's interesting what Matthew Henry had to say about that, the Puritan father. He died about 1701 or so. Uh, in his commentary, he says that this can't be talking about when it says that uh, not only will he see the virgin birth and he'll be the son of God, um, but he'll rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there'll be no end. He said, and Matthew Henry says that can't be hmm. talking about the Israelites according to the flesh. And he gives two reasons. Uh, one reason is they rejected Jesus. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Sure. Uh, they rejected Jesus. Okay. And the second reason is Israel doesn't exist. Hmm. And on his, his uh, Google Maps of you know, his day, he didn't have Israel. That's right. You know, I wonder what I've done any better. Well, some did better. Some back then still held to a future for national Israel, but he rejected those things. And it's interesting, right in the same passage, he accepts literally the virgin birth, but not literally the other things. Right. And I think he rejects them for theological reasons, not for exegetical reasons. Sure. And that's a problem with me because I think you need to be consistent. Going back again to dispensationalist love for consistency on those things, not that we're perfect right. in our own interpretation, but uh, we want to see that. So, uh, one of the problems with that supersessionism is, and I want to be careful here, I don't accuse all supersessionists or all replacement guys today of being personally anti-Semitic. Right. I don't do that. Right. I, I think that would be the uh, the root historical fallacy, you know, going yes. back to the uh, early church. And, you know, but it is true in the early church that anti-Semitism was one of the streams that influenced along with Platonism and Gnosticism and other things that did influence uh, the rise of replacement theology in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and I think our covenant friends, especially, and the Catholics, if they would ever come along, that they need to realize that uh, and see the danger of that. And so that's the danger. Does that allow a theological loophole that lets anti-Semitism seep in? I would hope that in most most of their churches that it doesn't. Right. Uh, but it, it's certainly a concern that we have. And certainly I think in the Middle Ages, the way that was hammered uh, is uh, in such a negative way that did lead to uh, even the killing of Jewish people. Now, I'm not going to blame the Holocaust on replacement theology, but I do believe replacement theology set a cultural tone that later on allowed for Nazism to flourish. Definitely. Uh, and I, so uh, we need to be careful with that. And, and of course, the impact on the church, it's caused the church to basically blow off the Old Testament. Uh, the church to become unhinged from the Old Testament. Yes. Uh, to have the church uh, seek for a different hermeneutic so it can read the Old Testament in a way that they could have some value to the promises. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it has affected the church up to interpretation and practical life. I mean, the whole idea of the you know the Jews right now are having a hard time coming to Jesus. Why? And there are more Jews right now coming to Christ than any other time mm. in history, but it's still a big wall between us because of all these centuries of hatred and pogroms and yes. Holocaust and forced conversions and stealing their money and taking it away and, and uh, all this abuse. And it's true in the second century, uh, the Jews abused the church. In the first century, they abused the church. That's true. Mm -hmm. 
But unfortunately, we've returned the favor in spades, multiplied 100 times over. Yes. And that has caused evangelism of the Jews to be very difficult and caused many of them to believe that the very act of evangelizing Jewish people is an act of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's not a good place to be. And that's why at Friends of Israel, we spend so much time and effort in trying to convince Jewish people that there are Christians who actually love them. Right. And I asked our Jewish guide on the last tour I was helping lead in Israel, he started talking about the love of uh, many evangelicals for Israel. And I asked him, uh, uh, and he gave his answer to the whole bus. And I asked him, I said, when we say that we love you, do you believe us? Hmm. And he said, yes, I do. Uh, And I think Friends of Israel has been successful at doing that. We see that in Eastern Europe where we have um, Jewish rabbis, families, uh, Jewish centers and synagogues sending their children to, to camps in Poland children's camps in the summer run by Christians. Yes. That only happens because they have spent more than three decades of building a solid reputation with Jewish people and the Jewish people know that we love them. Right. We're there at the March for the Living. We're there at other times. We're there with them with supplies and help. We're not going to let them be attacked. And we're going to try to help take care of them. So I think Christians have to spend more time doing that because of this replacement theology that has so impacted the church over the centuries. Well, conversely, dispensationalism is closely tied to Christian Zionism or Christian support for Israel. Why do you think that is? Well, again, like we said kind of earlier, you know, not every Christian Zionist is a dispensationalist. Correct. But every dispensationalist is a Christian Zionist. Okay, look. If, you know, Zionism is basically the belief that Israel has a right to the land. Okay, and do they have a right to land? In the sovereignty of God, if he allows it, in any given, you know, they've got the title deed, and he can kick them out, as he said, the cycles in Deuteronomy 28. He's done it twice. Will he do it again? I, I hope not. I don't think it'll happen, but um, uh, they have a right to the land. And how do I get there? I read the Bible. Mm. I read Genesis 12. I read Genesis 15. I read Genesis 17. I, I read all the reaffirmations of the promises throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I come to the New Testament. I see nothing that changes that. Right. Regardless of what others say. You know, they're doing it. They're doing a theological interpretation. I'm doing an exegetical expositional one. I don't see it at all. And so dispensationalists accept at face value the land promises in the Bible. Israel has a future and Israel has a land. And, and God has made that promise and he's going to keep his promise he's not going to back down on that so dispensationalist if uh if i might borrow a rabbi rabbi heschel famous rabbi yes. i think he was in the philadelphia area back in the early 1900s jewish rabbi not a not a christian but he made the statement that to repudiate the land that is the land promises mm. is to repudiate the bible mm. and i think he was right about that yeah. And we as dispensationists are not going to repudiate the Bible. Uh, we're not going to reinterpret the land promises. We're going to accept them the way that God gave them. And that makes us a Zionist. Well, Mike, I want to ask you one final question. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, asked to sit down with this uh, guy about my age, and he said that he had questions about Israel and and 
the Jewish people's relationship to God and, and the dispensational view of Scripture, really toying with, with replacement theology and, and even a covenant theology. What do you recommend that that kind of a person do who's on the fence about which view best reflects the Scripture's teachings? Okay. Well, first let me say that, Ine, I'll give you a couple of resources here. Um, but first let me say he needs to understand the Bible predicts Israel to be brought back into the land in unbelief mm-hmm. before the end time days. Yes. Uh, Zephaniah 2.1, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 22. There are many passages that, that teach that exegetically. And then there's some deductions. Obviously, Israel's in the land during the tribulation period, giving mosaic sacrifices. They're in unbelief because they're giving mosaic sacrifices right. of, of a particular kind. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to go back to the old ways. That's that's different um, and, and wrong. So they're in unbelief. We don't pretend that Israel today is the spiritual restoration of the nation in its kingdom. Yes. That's not at all what's happened. That awaits the second coming of Jesus. And there'll be a wholesale conversion of the Jewish people to, uh, to God, to Christ uh, at the second coming. And then they'll enter into the kingdom and kingdom glory with spiritual and physical restoration and so that's coming uh and so don't look at israel now if they're in unbelief as some uh, to get doubt upon your belief about the future of israel that's yeah. that makes perfect sense based upon what the scriptures have given uh, a couple of resources i would always start with ryrie's book dispensationalism it was originally published in 1965 as dispensationalism today mm-hmm. it's had a few uh uh, remakes uh, entitled Dispensationalism since then. I would start there. Also, Reynolds Shower's book that we carry, Reynolds Shower's was the Friends of Israel. There really is a difference. Fantastic. That helps outline those two uh, differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. And I think that would, would help. That'd be a beginning point to study. Different. And the other, other thing is, I just tell them, read the Bible at face value. Just read the Old Testament. Just read those promises to Israel in the land. How, how would you take them? If you, had, you know, uh, just read them like, like the Jewish people would have read them in back in the day. Uh, and I think that will help people to see uh, the difference. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us about dispensationalism and, and really more than dispensationalism. It's, it's about rightly dividing the word of God so that we understand uh, his word and his character uh, and the way that he has revealed himself and he's revealed it. So I thank you for your time and, uh, Thank you for all that you do for Friends of Israel. Thanks for the opportunity, Ty. God bless you. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Ty, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.